You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I had been preaching a gospel of uh, prosperity, but God has nothing to do with material things as far as I'm concerned today. You know, whether you're rich or poor, God loves you the same. Fallen televangelist, Reverend Jim Baker, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. The PTL Television Network presents Jim and Tammy. In the 1970s and the 1980s, perhaps no one was more popular on Christian television than Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Come on now, let's have a great big welcome for Jim and Tammy Baker! Welcome to Heritage USA, it's nice to have you here. My, what a wonderful audience. Founders of the PTL Club and later the Heritage USA theme park, Jim and Tammy Fay preached a theology of prosperity. God wanted you to do well financially, they said. But in the mid-1980s, it came out that the Bakers were doing uh, perhaps a little bit better financially than they legally should be, what with all the contributions from their donors. And then finally, when Jim Baker was accused of sexually assaulting church secretary Jessica Hahn, and then paying her with PTL funds to keep her quiet, prosecutors launched an investigation, and in 1989, Jim Baker was convicted and sentenced to 45 years in prison for fraud. But powerful allies intervened, including famed defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, and in 1994, Jim Baker was paroled from prison. A couple of years later, Jim Baker wrote a book, based on what he said were revelations that came to him in prison when he read the entire Bible for the first time and realized that, as his book was called, I was wrong. So here now, from 1996, my conversation with the Reverend Jim Baker. Was this a title you chose? Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say so, but uh, it was the title that I came, I came up with the title. And... Uh, a lot of my friends do not like the title of the book. They, they think that, uh, you know, people who love you say, well, well, don't do that. Even my children at first said, Dad, don't title your book, I Was Wrong. We love you. We've defended you all through all of this. And, but I felt like that I needed to say that because I was wrong in many, many ways. This is, this is a far more substantive book Maybe it's a left-handed compliment for me to say this, but this is a far more substantive book than I had anticipated it would be at the outset. This is not just another, um, you know, the kind of books that are out there. You've met many of the authors of these books, and, and many of them are very self-serving, and they and they have one point or another to make. But this is not just a very large book, but it's it's a it's a thick, it's a rich, it's a, a multi-layered, a very substantive book. And I I was, as I was telling you before the interview, I was drawn into it in a way I hadn't expected to be. I worked, the book is a lifetime of work and a full year of writing, many times to four or five o'clock in the morning. In fact, as I was writing the book at times, going back through the times when they'd put me in a mental institution during the trial, I almost had a nervous breakdown again, writing the book, literally going through trauma 
I had to call the doctor at one point. I said, doctor, what's happening to me? And he said, well, you're bringing up all of that past. And I was putting back together pieces of things that were missing. Like, as I was, I'm sure you've seen the picture of them putting me in a police car and chains in the middle of the trial. I didn't realize what had happened to me. And the doctor tells me that I had a nervous breakdown at that point. And so whole pieces of my life was missing. I, I was missing, uh, they put me in a holding cell for several hours. And as I was researching for the book, I read in the press that I had been put in that holding cell. I don't remember that. And then as they put me into the, they put me in the police car and took me to Butner Prison, where there is a mental institution inside that prison. And as they took me out of the car, the police car, I, I remember seeing all the, the cameras and the microphones and it was, it was like an honor guard, the, the boom mics and everything. Only it was more like a dishonor guard for me. And by the time I got to the prison door, it was like you turn the, uh, the darkness onto a TV screen. You know, you turn the, the brightness knob down and it turns dark. Well, gradually my life just went darker and darker until by the time I got to the prison door, it was, it was blacked out. I was, I have no memory of from the door until I woke up like and I was in a small room with all these men uh, around me. One was going through my wallet, counting my money, my credit cards. And I remember asking him for the picture of my little grandson, baby James. And, and then they had they stripped me naked there at that point. And I, I, I don't know how far you would like me to go into that story. But it, but what I'm trying to say is. I was putting all this back together again, and the doctors told me by going back and living this, I was literally pulling up every raw emotion inside of me. I was, I was going to say, when, when you're in a horrible auto accident and your leg is cut off and you're bleeding, your pain is shut off because it would be too much for you to bear at that that's point. That's it. That's it. That's what, that's what happened. Th- that's that's it. what the doctor said. He said, I was literally shutting down at points. And then I went through all these, the body cavity searches and things that I had, had never happened to me before. And it was like the brightness knob was all the way down to dark at those points. And I remember it in a, like a haze today. And, and they put an orange jumpsuit on me and take me from different places. And, and then when I would, I would, they took me to the final place, uh, before processing into the mental institution and, they had me stripped naked again, and, and they were going to photograph me naked. But one of the men said, well, let him leave his underpants on. So they photographed me with Polaroid, and then then they gave the pictures to two ladies who then processed me in to the mental institution. And as, it was like I was being pulled over the Grand Canyon. I, I, it was like I was coming to the edge, and I, I felt like somebody was, they were going to push me right over the edge. And as I... As they opened the doors to the mental institution, I began to hear people screaming. And one man was singing three notes, la, 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 la. And eyes peering through the holes where they put the food through the doors. The men would be sitting on the floor, and I could just see their eyes. And it was like they were demon-possessed eyes. And they put me in the far-end cell on the right and watched me day and night. There was no pillow. There was uh, a shower head in the corner. Uh, a slab to lay on, and and a toilet right next to the bed. And day and night, 
they watched me, and this man kept singing in the next cell, la, 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 la. And he was a very, very sick man dying, actually. And when they'd bring me my food, I had this, would sit on the side of the bed and try to eat, which I, I never really, I don't think I hardly ate a bite of food in that prison. The, 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 the medics would come in the night and, and, and put needles in my arms. And I thought they were putting something in me. Later on, I found out they were putting, they were drawing blood, but I didn't know in that state. And so when I finally, I couldn't take anymore, I decided to go insane. I literally decided to let my brain go. And when I decided to let my brain go, in fact, I asked the doctor, Dr. Basil Jackson, who had treated me, and I said, could I have done so? Could I have gone insane and willed it? He said, absolutely. He said, in your state of mind with a nervous breakdown, he said, you could have willed. And so I just slumped back in the corner of the cell. There was like a door here, and, and I was over in the corner. It's the only spot where the guards couldn't see me. I slipped to the floor and decided to let my brain go. I could not take no more. And just at that moment, just as I was literally losing, losing it, just letting it go, a voice cries out, Jim, God loves you. And I looked around and there was nobody in the room. And I, and I thought, well, what is this? You know, I'm hazy minded. You know, could this be an angel? What a voice saying right at my minute of crisis. And then I said, I think I'm going crazy. <laughs> and this voice comes back and says, no, you're not, Jim. God loves you. And I looked around and I, I looked in there up and I was sitting on the floor. So I, I was almost eye level with this slot in the door and I saw these eyes. And if angels, you know, if it was an angel, angels are black because this was a, I could see some <laughs> black skin and two brown eyes. And I looked at him again and I said, I, I think I'm going crazy. And he said, no, Jim, God loves you. And it was the guard in that prison who at that moment chose to reach out to me, telling me later that if anyone ever found out who he was, he would be fired. He, it was against the, the rules for him to even have any communication with me. But he prayed for me, talked to me. And, uh, you know, it, it was just a great moment to know that at my moment of need, God was there. Because I really, over the years, of the first years of prison, I really began to wonder if, if there was a God. Something occurred to me as I was reading. You, have, you tell some harrowing stories about your prison experiences, which would probably be the subject of a whole other book at some point, The State of America's Prison System. But it occurred to me, uh, uh, is God a, a different kind of being to a prisoner than he is to someone who has all their freedoms? Well, I think he's the same God. I just think that we don't understand in today, uh, in the church world especially, we, we don't really know God. And the thing that I found out that God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And that's, that's the main message of this book. Uh, Hebrews uh, 13.5 says, I will never leave you and nor forsake you. And those are actually double negatives. And it, and it really should read, I will never, never leave you and never, never forsake you. And that's what I found to be true through the prison years, that God did not leave me. He did not forsake me. But I had been preaching a gospel of uh, prosperity. I had I had preached that uh, you know, God wanted us to prosper and be in health as our soul prospers. And so I was, I was really, uh, and I believed it. I believed it a hundred percent. 
And yet, when I went to prison, I had lost everything. I'd lost all my cars. I'd lost my home. I'd lost my insurance. Uh, the, after the first Christmas, actually three months after the first Christmas, I watched CNN News mm-hmm. and watched my house burn to the ground. And I begin to wonder, is there a God? So if you equate God's love with what you have materially, then if you lose material things, you you lose out with God. But God has nothing to do with material things as far as I'm concerned today. Those things are, you know, you, whether you're rich or poor, God loves you the same. And as I begin to study to find out about God, because I kept saying, God, where are you? I'd wake up every morning in prison facing a 45-year sentence, wondering if God had just abandoned me and turned his back on me. And uh, one night I had a dream, and in this dream I was sitting next to Christ in this dream, and he reached up into his eye and took a sliver of his own eye and put it into my eye, and he said to me, I want you to see everything and everyone through my eyes. Well, this was the first inkling that I felt that God was still talking to me in any way, shape, or form, and it came through this very brilliant technicolor dream. And and so I thought to myself when I woke up, well, how am I going to do that? How am I going to see everything and everyone through the eyes of Christ? And I suddenly realized I needed to know what Christ had to say. So I spent about two years reading every word Jesus spoke, and I wrote it out by hand, and I rewrote it and rewrote it out. And that is how I came to the conclusion that uh, what I had taught was so wrong because everything Christ said about money was bad. He said, he called riches the deceitfulness of riches. He said, woe unto the rich. He said, you can't serve God and money. He said, don't build treasures on earth. And so here I was teaching people how to become wealthy. Well, based on the scripture that is in 3 John 2, it says, Above all things, I want you to prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. So that didn't make sense because Jesus Christ had said the number one thing in all the world is to love God. Christ said the number two thing in all the world is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how can how can this be? How could third John two be right? Above all, he wants us to prosper. That would be mean above our even our very soul's salvation. And so. I found out when something doesn't make sense in the Bible, the scripture says, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I started studying. I, in fact, I took every word in that verse uh, in the Greek. In fact, I, in fact, when I got to the book of Revelations, I did the same thing. I had a lot of time. You don't call it doing time for nothing. <laughs> so I took every, every word in Greek, and it's very interesting to study. So as I studied this third John 2, I realized that that word prosper had nothing to do with money in the Greek. And, and not to get too long, but it was made up of two two words, good or well, meaning good or well, and then uh, uh, road, or it's a progressive word, so it was like progressive journey. So all John was saying there was, uh, Beloved, I want you to have a good journey through life, even as your soul has a good journey to heaven. It had nothing to do with money. And so as I began to research this, I realized I had taught some things that were opposite of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that's why this title, I Was Wrong, is is so important to me. 
after this short break. The people who were close to him who told Jim Baker he was having an affair with a mistress, but not a woman. Now back to my 1996 conversation with the Reverend Jim Baker. You know, one, one of the most poignant portions of the book, too, is when you talk about uh, the arguments that you and Tammy used to have over Heritage USA, and she would yeah. call it your mistress. Yeah. And how yeah. the how you were incensed when one of your fellow clergymen said that you were having an affair with your with your mistress, your your bricks and steel. Yeah, he said I was committing fornication with brick and mortar. There you, and, and, and <laughs> James Robertson. <laughs> you know, I you know, I have to stop and think. I mean, how many of us are doing that? I mean, what, we may not have a Heritage USA, yeah. but we may have a career. We may have cars. We may have. Something else that, that we're that we're having an affair oh, well, with. I'm glad you brought that because this is something that's so dear to my heart. Because so many religious people, we 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 cast off on of someone who has a drug addiction, or an alcoholic problem, or some other problem. But I'm convinced everybody has a drug, a drug of choice. It might be food, sugar. It might be power, just like you're talking about. You see, and that that became my drug is power and and building and creating something. My vision of building a community uh, for God's people became more important than God's people, you see. And that's where I went wrong. The box, the buildings, became bigger than the package, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter at that point, does it, that you had good intentions, that that's you right. wanted to spread the word and, and convert souls. It doesn't matter no. if you lose sight of that. And I, I, I had a tiger by the tail. I had to raise a million dollars every two days. And so when you have that type of pressure, the, 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 the tail does wag the dog. And, and you, you know, they'll say you have a tiger by the tail. You can't stop. If you stop, you're dead. It, it all crumbles around you. So you either raise that kind of money or you don't pay your bills. So the old saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're, you're, you're really between a rock and a hard place. And as a practical matter, how much attention can you give to saving souls if you have to worry about what color the carpet is or right. what, uh, you know, what, what kind of mortar we're going to use or what color the fixtures are going to yes. be. When I did of... all that, and Heritage was four square miles, and people, during the day, I'd be working night and day to build the place. And people would come up to me and say, we want to talk or we want to, you know, we want to have our picture taken with you or, or whatever. And I would tell, like, I'd have always my bodyguards around me, and I, I really regret that now, but, but that's the way it was. And I would say to somebody next to me, my bodyguard or whoever was there, and I'd say, you know, don't these people realize? Why are they bothering me? Don't they realize I'm building this for them? And uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote from his prison, he said it's when the man's vision of a Christian community becomes more important than the community itself, it is sin. And that's where I was. Now, of course, it's very easy for those of us on the outside to cast stones, too, because we weren't in your position. I mean, it's very easy for those of us uh, in, the, in, the, in the lay congregation, as it were, to stay and say, wag our fingers and say, you shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't you have known better? I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. uh, none of us are without sin either. Well, hindsight is so clear, and that's why I hate to tell anyone, you know, oh, yeah, this is so easy to see what I did wrong or... I should have done this or, uh, you know, you have to put yourself back in those conditions, in that pressure, in, in what you were going through. And just like prison, 
it's so easy now, it would be for me to tell people, oh yeah, God helped me through prison, and it was just a breeze, and da-da-da-da-da, and give God great glory for it. But it would be a lie. I did not like prison. Prison was tough. Prison was a place I don't want to be. But God did help me through it. You know, I can do all things through Christ. A lot of people build Taj Mahas with that scripture, but that was Paul writing from prison. You know, sometimes we have to go through things. And what I learned is God's going to be there with me. And I, I, I resent so much of what I taught in the past because people feel like if they have a divorce or a death in the family or a crisis, that maybe God doesn't love them anymore. That's wrong. That's wrong. In fact, even the scriptures doesn't, they don't say whom God loves. He gives a new car, a new house. The Bible says whom God loves, he chastises and he disciplines. So, uh, I was wrong. One of the questions that, that kept coming to mind as I was reading this book, this is your book. You wrote this. You had the ultimate say over what was to be in the book. You could have left anything you wanted out of the book. That's right. Why did you feel that you wanted to tell us, spend several pages telling us about the infamous Jessica Hahn affair? Why did you include that photo of, of you at your lowest moment? Why did you include the letters between you and Tammy when you were in prison? Well, I'll be honest with you. The first book, the first writing of this book did not have the Jessica Hahn chapters or the Jerry Falwell chapters or the takeover chapters. Uh, I hate to blame it on my publishers, but they're the ones who insisted. They said, well, you just can't end up in prison. You've got to tell us how you got there and what it was all about. So I tried to be honest. I tried to uh, be kind. And... Um, I, I hope I succeeded. It had to be so terribly painful for you, though. Well, the reason I included the letters, Tammy Faye and I have only talked one time since I left prison, and I called her and her husband to get permission to use her letters in the book. And my letters and her letters are raw. I mean, at one point in the letter, she calls me a pompous ass, which I probably was. But it's two people who loved each other for 30 years, married 30 years, just desperately trying to find our way in a very dark hour. And I felt I cannot gloss over this and, and pretend it didn't happen and make believe that we had somehow a charmed life. And I think those letters say volumes of uh, for you know I, I would I would preach to her in the letters. Then I would I would love her and then I would be angry. And and, and we just you know, we put those raw letters in the book, and I'm not sure Tammy Faye's too happy with them, but uh, she did give permission for me to run her letters in, in my book. One thing, both in your book and when I saw you last night on Larry King, that came through that, that says, I think, as much about your character as anything, is how your eyes light up when anyone asks you about your family, about your <laughs> children, <laughs> your grandchildren, your parents, anybody you're there there's something complete it's like you're a whole another person when you're talking about your family besides god all i had left was my children and i worked so hard that i really ignored my children too much when they were growing up in fact my son when he turned 16 he came to prison to see me for the first time all by himself 
We spent a whole day together. We talked about the birds and the bees. We talked about Jessica. I mean, we talked about anything he wanted to talk about, his girlfriends, his heartbreaks, everything. And at the end of that eight-hour day, Jamie went to leave, and he looked at me, and he said, Dad, this has been the best day of my life. My whole life, all I've wanted is to have you all to myself for one whole day. As a minister, I was giving out to all these other people and working and doing all these things, and my own son wanted me. And my grandchildren came to prison to see me, and my daughter, I just love my daughter. She is the apple of my eye. And she, one of my grandsons was born while I was in prison, and she'd put my picture on the refrigerator so that they knew me. So when they came to prison, uh, they weren't afraid of me. They'd run right to me. And I told the story the other night about my grandson James. When he, one of the first times he came to prison, he, he walked in the prison door and he said to his mother, he said, Mom, Paul, Paul, Jim has a big house. <laughs> and I told Tammy Sue after, I said, yeah, Paul, Paul, Jim's in the big house. <laughs> but th- those grandkids, uh, I found out that Boy, when everything's gone, you, your children, your grandchildren, your mother and father, they're there. And my son worked night and day to get me out of prison. He called all the leaders of America. He did everything he could. He talked to Jerry Falwell on the phone. He went to see him in person. He went to see Jimmy, called Jimmy Swire. He talked to world leaders, everyone he could possibly. His whole life was devoted to getting his dad out of prison. So, yeah, my family, uh, man, that's all I have left. Over the past few years, I've met, as you have, I'm sure, many times, people who have been prisoners or they've been political prisoners or they've been hostages. They've been Mm -hmm. under very, to say, adverse conditions, wouldn't even begin to describe. And almost without exception, they tell me that they found within themselves a strength that they didn't even know they had. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there's that, there's that, that, that saying that God does not give us more of a burden than mm-hmm. we can carry. Mm-hmm. There must have been times when you were astonished at the burden God thought you were capable of carrying. Yeah. He had a higher opinion of me than I did. <laughs> and, you know, those early years waking up every morning facing 45 years were devastating. But yet God never left me through that whole time. I could tell you story after story of little miracles, little things he would do that, you know, Billy Graham coming to see me just before I found about the divorce. The the day after the divorce, Dave Reaver, one of the greatest men of God I've ever met, that, you know, was blown up in Vietnam and put his arms around me the morning after the divorce and, and was there in the prison, had been booked in months before. But all of these things showed me that, that God really cared. I wouldn't trade anything for what I learned in the prison years. As I said before, I don't want to do it again, but I thank God and I feel blessed for going through the prison years. Jim Baker is 81 now. He is still seen on television on The Jim Baker Show, co-hosted with second wife Lori. Tammy Faye also went on to remarry. She died in 2007 at age 65. 
And you can find easy Amazon links to Reverend Jim Baker's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with Tammy Faye Baker-Mesner. People often ask me, well, do you feel like a victim? No, because you're only a victim if you let yourself be. I don't think God picks you out for bad things to happen. <laughs> bad things happen to everyone, mm-hmm. and good things happen to everyone. And to my interview with the Reverend Robert Schuler. People say to me, is it possible to be saved, or is it possible to know you're going to heaven, or is it possible to enter eternity without fear, without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? My answer is, I don't know. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman behind some of the most memorable phrases ever uttered by Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, my 1998 conversation with former presidential speechwriter Peggy Noonan. Reagan told me a bunch of things that I thought worked for him. It was only after I became a speaker that I realized, oh, this works for me. Reagan's first rule of speeches was don't speak longer than 20 minutes. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.